Welcome back everyone to Piper Sandler's Global uh, Exchange and FinTech Conference. I'm very pleased to move uh, to our next exchange uh, and, and that being the CME and Terry Duffy, the chairman and CEO. So we always have uh, fun and interesting conversations. Uh, thank you again uh, for partic participating, Terry. Uh, thank you, Rich, appreciate it. We just got done talking about, uh, with Jeff talking about networks and uh, how they, you know, electronic networks and how they spur, you know, trading and, uh, you know, uh, and how, how investors value uh, the networks. The CME, you know, gets a, a premium valuation. Uh, and again, it could be you know, affected by sort of cyclical ebbs and flows and so forth. But still, I think everybody looks at the CME as, you know, the an impenetrable sort of business model and network. So I, I, at least, I guess the question is, you know, why do you think uh, investors view it like that? And why do you think uh, investors in view value your network so high? I guess. Well, I, I think there are two different networks, obviously. I'm, I didn't hear what Jeff had to say um, as it relates to his. So I'm sorry I missed his presentation, but there are obviously two different networks. Ours is a vertical model that's got intellectual property products that are embedded in that vertical model um, where shareholders can look at that and um, assess what the value of that is to them in return. Um, it's a global model in nature. You know, we're, we're fortunate to have global regulators, not a centric regulator, um, which allows us to continue to grow our business around the world. Um, our, our product uh, asset classes are you know, whether they're derivatives of a derivative and there's smaller products associated with them allows people to stay interested in certain asset classes while they participate in other ones. You know, example being if energy is going full throttle and people don't want to liquidate, say their equity positions because we have smaller micro contracts on, on, some, on our, some of our products, they can still participate in that product because the margin's much lower and yet at the same time focus where they think the action is for lack of a better term on that given day. So the network effect that CME has is truly uh, global in nature. It, it's, it, it's a pool of liquidity and an ecosystem that comes from everywhere. I think it's a very appealing network model. And uh, so, you know, again, I'm not, I would not disparage my friend's model, uh, but I think ours is just that much different. And I think that's what the, the value to the shareholders, they see that and, um, Hence the, the value we put on CME. Yeah, uh, you know when you think everybody thinks about the CME and the diversified products, and uh, again that vertical clearing model that, that you spoke of, Terry. So uh, when we last talked, I think it was in in March, uh, we were in a robust uh, you know first quarter volumes uh, over some. In fact, it's carried pretty much through uh, to May, June we're off a bit, but I, I guess. You know, there's ebbs and flows of, of volume and volatility. And I, I guess, you know, how do you feel generally about the business as, as we go into the, the summer would be one thing. You're seeing a, a return to uh, the workplace for the big banks. Uh, we think we're going to see that in, in the right. summer. Uh, so what do you, how, how are you feeling about uh, the health? Well, we know the business is healthy, but volume and volatility sort of in the, yeah, and I think, Rich, I think volatility is a component of what we do. It's not the only thing that we do. People need to manage risks. 
you look at what's going on on a daily basis, whether it's the colonial pipeline one day, whether it's another event the next day, people just need to manage risk. We live in a very difficult, different world uh, than we did just as little as 10, 12 years ago. So um, I think the, the risk management is critically important. Now, how does that uh, resonate into revenues for the shareholders in, in volumes, as well as creating efficiencies for the marketplace? I outlined earlier our different asset classes that we have, and you said it as well. But I, I really truly believe that, you know, it's an uncertain place and people need to manage risk. And the only way they're going to continue to manage risk, what appears to be in low vol times, is to do it at a cost-effective way. And, and I think that's one of the things that we've been very effective at is creating capital efficiencies for the clients so they can stay risk managed even when it appears that you know things are relatively calm. You know, I always believe that in in choppy mark in in crazy markets, any, you know, it's hard to manage and in calm markets, anybody can do it. The question is, you know, even in the calmest of times, we get a number like we got today on CPI, market shrugs it off a little bit, but how long can it really shrug these things off for? So I, I don't know, I'm not predicting markets, but we're seeing a lot of different fundamentals that could be adding up to more and more people needing to manage that risk because eventually it will come home to roost. I, I think, Terry, you, you you express this managing of risks and where, you know, the CME's importance, you know, since I've known you. So uh, that's a great point to highlight. Uh, CME has been great at international growth, uh, I guess, over the past seven. And I know the workforce has been sort of reconfigured and you added products as, you know, certainly within the verticals, but also, you know, broker tech and, uh, and EBS. So I guess, where do you see the, the growth opportunities? Is that continuing uh, internationally? Do you think we're in the, you know, still in the early innings there, mid innings, or uh, what excites you about growth, the growth side of the, of the business? Yeah, I think international is always interesting to talk about because, you know, it's not the biggest part of our business, but when you look at the way we've been able to shift especially our sales force, Rich, um, from basically a, a US-centric sales force to an international sales force. It shows you that we see growth in, in different parts of the world other than just the US. Not that the US can't grow, we think it can. So we are excited by that. And with the cross-selling of broker tech and EBS by those folks uh, internationally is important. You know, and especially with EBS, you've got so many participants on EBS today that never traded futures a day in their life, that they're gonna have exposure and access to, to a, a whole host of different risk management asset classes, especially the largest FX platform, uh, regulated platform in the world, which are our FX futures. So the, the international growth side of this is pretty exciting, um, especially with the EBS as we continue to integrate that throughout this year. Broker Tech has done, as you know, and we've seen growth on that, on that platform. So. Internationally, I'm excited about the business. I don't want to point out any one single region. I still believe you referenced it a moment ago, back to office. You know, we're, we're out, we're, we're back out already. We're out doing sales uh, calls already. The question is, are we doing it in Starbucks or a, a coffee shop or are we doing it in offices? Well, a combination of both right now, depending on where people are at in their geographical area. So I think that's a healthy sign for all of us. You know, at the same time, we've got a lot of people that are, you know, doing flex schedules and working from home that I think are very, very, uh, they're, they're performing quite well. And I think maybe surprising a lot of people how well they're performing. So 
that too is a benefit to the organization to get that productivity out of people that, you know, have been out of the office for, you know, over a year and some change now. So a, a lot going on, not just here domestically, but obviously internationally. And I, I'm excited about that growth. And again, you know, just throughout the different regions. Well, I hope, you know, I still plan on trudging out in, in August for the summertime. So, so I hope you we bet, don't have you to better be out here. I wouldn't know what to do with the summer without refettles. So you better <laughs> exactly. be there. I hope we don't have to do it. I'll do a Starbucks. If, uh, I don't care. No, no, no. We're in the office here. We're good. We'll, we'll be there. We'll be there. In fact, we've already made jokes about it earlier that we'll, we'll be in Chicago. That, that is truly my goal. Good. Uh, you mentioned uh, EBS and, and Broker Tech and uh, you sort of uh, were the first to really bring in a cash you know, onto the same plat platform. We know that the, the benefits of trading and uh, the technology side, uh, but you also mentioned the, the cross margin efficiencies. I guess any more update on that? I, I know DTCC had to work with them. Uh, yep. That to me is the, what do you call it? The true opportunity, it may take time, but do I got this right or? No, you, you do, you do, you have it right. And I think when you look at the offsets between cash and futures, we already had prior to even um, uh, acquiring Next in the broker tech business, we already had margin offsets at the DTCC with cash versus futures to some degree. Now that, as you know, Rich, those percentages were low and, and, and they weren't actually even being utilized by the participants. When we acquired um, the firm, the, the people, the participants started to use the margin offsets were roughly in the 15 to 17%, maybe as high as 20 in the existing agreement. Now we have said that we can get those multiples higher of that working with DTCC and the SEC. Um, I think DTCC has done a really good job. I talked to Mike quite often spoke to him within the last month about getting you know some final details that needed to go to the sec from them i think mike has gotten that done so we're hoping um to get approval uh from the sec to work with our partner at dtcc to create the margin efficiencies you know upwards you know in between 60 and 80 percent efficiencies on margin um that to me as you suggested would be something very excited so we are really looking forward to getting that done you know, a lot of it's out of our hands. We're dealing with the government and the bureaucrats associated with government. And, and again, I'm not being disparaging towards them. It's just everybody's got to do their due diligence. We live in a different world today than we did a year and a half ago. So I anticipate it has taken a, a little bit longer than it probably should have. But we are excited that that is coming to fruition soon. And the clients will benefit and hopefully we'll see the back-end rewards of the volume uh, trading on the platform for clients. Yeah, that was really a groundbreaking in putting the two uh, cash and yeah. uh, derivative futures on, on, on Globex. Right. Uh, another thing that the CME has moved uh, very quickly the, the, would be retail uh, futures as well, and the partnership, uh, close partnership with TD Ameritrade, but also in developing products, I guess. So just trying to, you know, the retail mania is crazy out there. Uh, <laughs> and just trying to see what you're thinking about, you know, the opportunities for the, the, the CME uh, in, in retail. Yeah, and I think rich people need to define retail better um, in the world that we live in today, because I, I think people are lumping it in as one and it's truly not the case. 
So if you look at retail at CME today, CME retail today is deemed as uh, an active trader. It's not deemed as the GameStop participant or the Reddit participant or the Robinhood participant, you know, and it's not deemed as a DraftKings participant, you know. So now I've just promoted all the names of the people that are doing these different things. Um, <laughs> but the point is that that's, that's a different retail, right? That's just the people looking for different exposures. So the question is, how do you want to define retail? You know, I, I'm a big believer that retail is the, the, the shiny object in the room right now that everyone's talking about, just like we get on these different uh, projects and everybody does it throughout the world where they focus on one thing, whether it's, you know, how are you going to grow in China or how are you going to grow in retail now seems to be the new topic of the day. Yeah. So I am a big believer that we can continue to grow in retail. When you look at just the micro products that we've introduced throughout the years, those are not just for retail or the, the proprietary traders uh, on a daily basis. You know, you're looking at valuations of the S&P 500 going to levels that nobody ever thought we would see. So that's a very expensive contract. So even some institutions are trading some of these smaller contracts, you know, so that to me is really exciting about some of the micro uh, contracts. Now, what does that do to transition into the retail participant? It's something I'm focused on and I'm going to continue to stay focused on. Um, I, I think there's something to be done with retail as we described it earlier, which is more of the everyday people just wanting exposure. And I think what their everyday retail is showing is they, they want the same access as what they perceive as, you know, a large bank's access is to the marketplace. Now, what that is or isn't and what they perceive they're getting or not is, is maybe another thing. But I think there's ways to show and grow your retail business and still continue the integrity of the institution in the marketplace. And, and that to me is what's exciting. And, and I'm working on that along with my colleagues. And I think it, it's, um, you know, again, it, it's a, it's a, project, but at the same time, we got to be careful how you do it because, you know, anytime something's free and anytime, you know, you get a, a crowded trade, it doesn't seem to end very well. So I, I want to make sure we um, walk through this process in a meaningful, thoughtful way. So we're not having to retreat no different than when I first came out with Bitcoin, you know, it was easy to say list it listed, but I wanted to make sure that I had the things in place for the protections, whether it was margin requirements or other things of that nature, that we felt protected the participants in the futures market. And in return, we've been able to grow our business in that respect. I, I guess a couple things, you know, first, uh, I know you've thought out of the box about potential opportunities to, to reach retail people. So that's, that's interesting to me, uh, but we'll, we'll save that for another conversation. Sure. The, uh, the, the cryptocurrency thing, you, you, you don't hear problems about Bitcoin futures. Uh, uh, you, it, 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 and your, the opportunity to expand uh, into, I think you launched Ethereum uh, futures. But uh, that is still, when you say that's still from a, predominantly from a institutional standpoint, or, or are you, when will you be able to, what do you think of the growth of these products? I mean, is it, your customer base, or do you think they'll ever be, ever, ever, you can't say ever, maybe in the next three years be, you know, a material volume contributor? On the crypto? Yeah. So you're, 
we listed the microcrypt Bitcoin, which is um, one tenth of a Bitcoin um, compared to our existing contract, which is five Bitcoins per one contract, which is an extremely large contract, yeah. even at the $35,000 level, let alone the 60 plus thousand that hit yeah, not long ago. I was going to say it was 65,000. Right. So you can imagine you multiply that times five and you think about the value of a contract, you know, 300 plus thousand dollars for one contract of our crypto is a bit sporty um, for anybody. And now that we have this micro contract, we think it makes sense. So again, I, I think for crypto, I don't think fiat currencies are going away. And I'm sure people will say I, I'm old and I don't understand the world. I, I do believe fiat will be there. The question will be, how do people transact their business? No different than when people were using gold or using cash, you know, paper, and then credit cards and then wires and everything else. There's a, there's a payment methodology that I believe has been very, very successful. The question is, when you continue to make it more and more efficient, no one carries cash anymore. So how does crypto fit into that? I'd like to see the government take a more aggressive stance and participate in crypto versus just with their concerns that crypto is being used for nefarious reasons. You know, uh, fiat currencies have been used for nefarious reasons since day one. So, you know, they, they, I would hope they would open their eyes more, look at the efficiencies that the crypto business and the crypto world potentially has in order to move economies of scale forward along with blockchain businesses. So, um, so we do have Bitcoin, we do have Ether, as you pointed out. And, um, you know, we're participating. We're not all in, obviously, but we're participating. And I think that's um, what you need to do in this world because I, I don't see it going away anytime soon or at all. I, you touched on a topic that I, I know you'll find a little bit humorous, uh, but you, you've dealt, I know you've dealt with personally with uh, Chair Gensler and when it is time yeah. at the CFTC, the five years he was at the CFTC and uh, deeply involved in Dodd-Frank and really I think things that I think benefited the, the CME, you know, swap clear yeah. things so forth. I worked on Dodd-Frank with the chairman. Um, you know, he testified many times. He wanted to know why I opposed mandatory clearing of swaps. And I said, I don't oppose clearing of swaps. I just thought that there should be economically incented to clear swaps, not mandated by the government. So that was one of the big differences we had. Otherwise, I worked with the chairman very closely on um, Dodd-Frank, but I, I did believe that the banks should not be mandated to do certain things. I believe, believe that they should be economically incented to do them. And I thought that was a better approach. So that was really the only difference. So I've known Gary for a long time. Um, I think he is a very diligent guy. Um, his He did an interview yesterday, as I think sure some of your clients saw on payment for order flow and, and talked about a couple other topics as it relates with your with your friend, Bob Pisani. And, and Bob did a great job on the interview. And, um, you know, it's going to be interesting. It seems like he wants to, he's convinced that there is, um, you know, an inherent conflict of interest in payment for order flow. So it feels like he's going down that path right now. So he'll be focused on that issue right now. As you know, Rich, we don't have payment for order flow in the, uh, the futures industry. So it'll be, I'll be curious to see how that plays out. I also thought Doug Seafood did an excellent job in his response to that afterwards. So, we're gonna to have to wait and see how this all plays out. But um, 
you know, the, the chairman's an aggressive guy without a question. And you know that. So, yeah. um, but it seems to be that's where he's going to stay focused. And that's really, you know, I just wanted to, as someone who has dealt, you know, mono yeah. so to speak. Yeah. But, uh, just in real quick, uh, we get a few minutes, but you compare that to the CFTC, it seems like a pretty benign regulatory environment for the, maybe that's not the right word, but. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't call it benign. No. Yeah. I would, you know, when you look at the CFTC, Rich, I think most of your clients understand, as I said earlier, it's a global regulator. It has global agreements with, you know, uh, regulators around the world. The SEC is a centric retail, essentially regulator here in the U.S. And um, so there's, there's quite a bit of difference there. So I think the mandate between, you know, the, the rules that uh, the rules based uh, SEC versus the CFTC is a big difference. So the principles based and um, that has benefited the growth of our industry immensely. And at the same time, it hasn't hurt the credibility of the institutions because it's not for a lack of regulation. So we're still regulated. We have good smart regulation, which I'm a big believer in. I think that lends to the credibility of a marketplace. So I do not want to be unregulated. I like the regulation. And I think as long as you could be part of the process, and help craft it like Dodd-Frank and other things along the way over the last, you know, 40 plus years that CME has been doing this in, in the regulatory field, it's a good thing because, you know, the outcomes are better versus having a knee-jerk reaction and having something that you cannot do your business. And especially you won't be able to compete internationally. You have to be able to compete internationally to be successful at home. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, the principles base versus a rules base, it sort of allows uh, a different philosophy, so to speak, of regulation. Absolutely. Last question for you. Yes, sir. I appreciate your time. Uh, but I guess this is sort of the, the, the big last question is, uh, you know, you've guided, there's been plenty of cyclicality, uh, you know, even in, the, there's even been cyclicality, it, it appears many cycles over the last, 15 months, you know, the interest rate yeah. movements, et cetera. You continue, you know, to launch new products, you know, you got brand new, you know, the Sonya products as well. Uh, new products uh, integrate. Uh, so uh, the EBS, not EBS, but uh, broker tech and with EBS coming up. Right. So you've guided the, and we look at the CME as, I don't know what the word, but a big, you know, big, strong battleship. So, you know, through the, the waves. And then I, I guess, so the question is, you know, what has guided you? What have you learned over the past? Because this has been, a, for most people, a pretty crazy period. You know, uh, how, what have you learned from doing all these things at the same time? And, and how long are you going to do it for? <laughs> <laughs> well, here. Um... <laughs> The battleship analogy is a good one, Rich, because when you're a 184-year-old institution, people can look at you as maybe a bit of a Luddite and a big battleship, and maybe you're doing really well, but boy, you cannot change with the times. One of the things that I've stayed focused on is still maintaining that battleship, but I want to be able to spin it around in the Chicago River without hitting anything, and that's what we've been able to do. So yes, we are have um, a great business model of vertically integrated intellectual property products, um, you know, we're very proud of the work we've been able to do to create the efficiencies, whether it's going back to some of the M&A activity we've done, the unlock value, whether it's clear interest rate swaps, 
We turned billions of dollars of excess margin to the biggest dealers on the street that they didn't need because they were offset against our futures products. Those are all really important things that we've been able to accomplish. And I can list a bunch of things over the last 20 plus years that we've been able to do. One of the most important thing is we kept the battleship, but we can now turn the battleship on a dime. And I think that's critical. And when you look at, especially the last year and a half, I don't know anybody that's going to tell you that they were able to manage this without a hitch. There, there's, there's hitches and because there, no one's ever seen this before. And when you're dealing with a financial crisis, we can all understand math. When you're dealing with a pandemic, we all can't become doctors and scientists, even though we all try to be because we read, you know, what's the latest uh, blip on the internet. So I think it's been a difficult process for everybody, not any, not just for people in, in CEO roles, but I think for people, you know, working throughout institutions around the world, whatever the business may or may not be, it's been a tough, tough time for them. And I think it's important for all of us to understand that and to bring us back together in a thoughtful way. That's what will make value for shareholders down the road. So I'm not a big knee jerk reaction person. So I, I'm committed to staying through my contract, but that was your question, which goes through the end of 2023. I, I think it's really important. And then we'll, we'll evaluate it from there. I'm, I'm not a kid, I'm 62, I've been doing this for a long time. Still got a lot of step going forward. <laughs> Um, but, but I enjoy it and because I, I like, I like where the direction it can go, Rich. So, um, how much longer am I going to do this? That'll be up for my board to decide, but right now I'm committed through my time. It, it was, it was really a joke question. At that oh, point. I'm sorry. I thought it was a <laughs> but, uh, but I'm glad you, I'm glad you answered it. Thought at least gave us some, gave us some insight. Uh, we always have fun, Terry. I, I, just to wrap, I, I watched Lexi Thompson, uh, the LPGA yeah. player. It just a, a, a very sorry to see her, uh, you know, she lost the, the whole Well, you know what, I, I, I talked to Lexi afterwards and I told her I was extremely proud of her because when, when she handled herself the way she did versus the way, you know, some people could, you know, young people can now look up to somebody like that and with admiration saying, okay, she under, they understand defeat and how you get better. So I told her I was quite proud of her in a role model that she is not only for the LPGA, but for young girls all throughout the world. So I thought that was an important moment for her, the way she displayed herself. So as sad as it was for her to see her not win that, uh, happy for the winner, but I'm also even more uh, excited about the future of young people today when you see someone like Lexi Thompson showing that kind of class and uh, moving forward. So that was exciting for me to see that. And for the audience, uh, Terry and uh, the CME are big are supporters of the LPGA. So we hope we can go back to the GFLC. You'll be back this year, buddy. Come on now. We're going to have a great time. Or we're gonna... the, uh, the, the August trip is second. We want to go definitely do the November. Well, you know, I'll rig it so you can win the, um, you can win the Pro-Am this year. I'll, I'll give you a couple of heaters uh, outside of the uh, LPGA people. I'll get you a couple of tour pros that'll be in your group this year, Rich. They're going to have to be the top pros to get, to get me to <laughs> You're anyway. a good golfer. Yeah, it's great speaking to you. Uh, we look forward to seeing you, whether it's August or, or, or November or both. And uh, I appreciate your time that you take to do this every year. So thank you. Oh, always a pleasure. Thank you, Rich, for everything you do. And may God bless you and your family and all the folks that are watching. Thank you. Stay safe, stay healthy. Thank you. That ends our session. The next is with NASDAQ, and that will start promptly at 11 uh, a.m. Thanks, Terry, again. 
Talk to you soon. Thanks.